word today. We were looking at Romans chapter 3, and we're closing off the chapter today. And so I just want to read our text for us before we actually um, do a little review and then get into it. Uh, Romans chapter 3, and I want to begin in verse 27. Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 27. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No. But by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. As we've been going through Romans, we've seen uh, various uh, um, things that have come to light and uh, we've, we've seen in the first part of Romans how that our sin requires us to be righteous before God because we're not already righteous. And the only way we can have that righteousness is through salvation when we receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So we've seen a need for salvation, a way to salvation. We've seen that everybody is guilty before God, but at the same time there's hope for all men, all sinners before God because he offers salvation and so we ask the question how can a man be right with God and we noted that we don't have a righteousness of our own we need that righteousness and that righteousness is different in a couple ways and we pointed these out God's righteousness is different because of its source it comes only from God God's righteousness is different in its quality it's able to forgive all of our sin It's pure righteousness, holy righteousness. And then thirdly, we saw that God's righteousness is different because of its endurance. It never fades away. It never goes away. I don't know about you, but I'm glad I don't have to keep myself saved. Amen? Boy, I'd be lost as a a dog. You know, I, I wouldn't have any hope. But it's only because of the righteousness and its endurance, the righteousness that comes only from God. And we looked quickly just in review of these seven aspects of this righteousness as we think of the miracle of righteousness in our lives. And we saw, first of all, that it comes from God. Secondly, that it's apart from the law. It's apart from anything we do. The purpose of the law, remember, was to reveal sin. And we know that because in Galatians chapter 3, verse 11, it says, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. And then our own verse, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, that we know very well, for by the grace of God, or by grace you have been saved through faith, and it's not of your own doing, it's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. And then thirdly, we saw that God's righteousness is received only by faith. It's not received through church membership. It's not received through baptism. It's not received through raising your hand in a meeting. It's received by faith. And God's righteousness is for only one group of people, sinners, of which we all are one. Fifthly, God's righteousness is based on the grace of God. The grace of God. And we're going to dial in on that a little bit today. 
Sixthly, God's righteousness is provided by the death of Christ. We spoke of that last week. And God's method of salvation demonstrates his justice. God would not be a just God if he just said, oh, you sinned, oh, well, in my, in my sovereign power, I'm just going to make you righteous. No, something had to be done. The Bible says without the shedding of blood, there's no remission for sin. There's no way of that substitutionary system that God set up from the very beginning to work. We needed a substitute. We needed somebody that could go and die in our place. We needed someone who was perfect, a perfect sacrifice. The only person that could meet that challenge and meet that standard was the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we looked at these three words. You have justify, which means to declare righteous. And the result of that is being acquitted. We looked at redemption, the word redeem, which means to release from slavery. It was buying somebody back from the marketplace of sin. And that's what God has done to us if we're saved here today. And that gives us freedom. A lot of times people think, well, if I become a Christian, I'm going to be limited. It's going to restrain me. No. After you become a believer, beloved, that's the first time you have the freedom to do the right thing in God's eyes. It's a very liberating step of faith. God replaces those desires for sin and all those things with desires for purity and holiness. And then we looked at the word propitiation or propitiate, which means to turn away the wrath of God or to satisfy his need of justice. And the the result of that was that we are accepted. And I put a little triangle in there. You probably can't see it in your notes. It's kind of small. But it has those three words, and it's God the Father on the top, And propitiation relates Jesus Christ to God the Father through his satisfaction. That's that's that word. Justification relates the Christian to God the Father. We need to be justified before God. And redemption is the, the very fact that Christ purchased us as individuals from the marketplace of sin. So it's a kind of a neat little graph to understand those three words. And we understand that the scriptures, the one thing we've been learning over the past several weeks, it teaches us that this righteousness becomes ours only by the grace of God. Only by the grace of God. Apart from any human merit at all. And that's the meaning of grace. Uh, It's God's favor to us apart from human merit. I think that's kind of an important understanding Uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote this. He says, there is no more wonderful word than grace. It means unmerited favor or kindness shown to one who is utterly undeserving. It is not merely a free gift, listen to this, but a free gift to those who deserve the exact opposite. And it is given to us while we are without hope and without God in the world. Dave Bullen pulled this from the exemplary husband, a definition of grace and mercy. Sometimes people get these mixed up, and Dave, I want to use your material here this morning. Uh, I know you, it's not yours, but you recommended it to me. Grace, and look at these two definitions. It's kind of neat because it uses the same words, just in a different order. Grace is giving what is not deserved. Mercy is not giving what is deserved? 
Isn't that neat? The same words for that definition, yet just in a different order. Grace is giving what is not deserved. Mercy is not giving what is deserved. And he also passed on this little acrostic for grace. Kind of a neat way to remember grace. Grace is a gift. That's the principle of grace. R stands for redemption. That's the purpose of grace. Access. A stands for access, which talks about the privilege of grace. Character stands for the C there, and that's the product of grace. And eternal life is the perfection of grace. Isn't that good? That's a good way to... Man, that's a message all, all of its own. It's got, got all the, everything there, man. You got the acrostic, you got the P's, you got everything lined up. You know, it's not just three points, it's five points, but hey, that'll work. Keep that in your pocket. But how are we to do justice with this great truth of grace today? That's my question this morning. I think sometimes we have too high opinion of ourselves, to be honest even to understand grace, let alone to appreciate it. We speak of it with certainty, surely. We know the scriptures teach it. We sing the song, what amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. A lot of churches have changed that. They say that sounds too judgmental. So they want to change the words, amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saves someone like me. Isn't that just sugary sweet? Problem is, it's not true. See, we don't think of ourselves as wretches. <laughs> That's just not our natural inclination. We don't think of ourselves as someone who needs to be saved. Rather, we think of ourselves, especially here in America, as entitled, somebody who's pretty worthy, quite worthy. One Bible teacher said, amazing grace is no longer amazing to us. We've grown complacent with it. In our view, amazing grace is not even grace. And I think the reason we do not appreciate grace is that we really don't believe what we've studied here in Romans 3, especially verse 23, when it says, what? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Or if we do, we definitely don't believe it to the extent that Paul is teaching it. Okay, fly, you're going to die here in a second if you don't leave me alone. (laughs) Charles Haddon Spurgeon wrote a book called All of Grace. All of Grace. I'm showing the fly grace right now. (laughs) And he told the uh, story of a preacher from... Northern England, who went to call on this poor woman in his congregation, and he knew that she needed help financially. He knew that she was in dire straits. And so the pastor one day, with money from the church in hand, made his way through the poor section of the city where this lady lived and climbed up the four flights of stairs to her tiny little attic apartment. He knocked on her door, and there was no answer. And he knocked again. He was rather persistent. There was still no answer. Finally, he gave up. He went away. Next week, he saw the woman in church. 
And he told her that, hey, I understand you're in great need here, and, and uh, you know, I want to try to help you out. I've been trying to help you. And I called at your residence, at your room there where you stay the other day, but you weren't home, apparently. And she kind of looked puzzled, and she said, well, what time did you call, sir? And he said, well, it was about noon. And she said, oh, dear. I was home, and I heard you knocking. But I went to the back room and hid because I thought it was the landlord calling for the rent. (laughs) See, that's a good illustration of grace and it's a good illustration of our natural let's just say inability to appreciate it but i think it's also true that almost we kind of laugh at that story we look at that lady and we say well you know uh, most of us uh, don't identify with that we consider her situation and You know, she was unable to pay her rent. We may know people like that. In the Bay Area, it may be more than not. But a lot of times, I mean, we come up with the money that we need at the end of the month to pay the rent. But we think that's not our condition. (laughs) Because we can pay the rent. We pay our bills. And we suppose, even though we may officially deny it, that somehow we'll be able to pay something, a down payment, even if it's not the full amount, on our outstanding balance in heaven. So what do we do? We bar the door. Not because we're afraid that God is coming to collect the rent. We know that. That's not the case. But I think, to be honest with you, a lot of people in our society today bar the door because they fear that he is coming with grace. And in their mind... They don't need a handout. That's the last thing they need. Because they don't consider their situation to be desperate. See, in the the chapter here of Romans that we've been studying, it's shown us over and over again there's no difference. It doesn't matter what your religious background is. It doesn't matter about a lot of these things. As far as the requirements that God is concerned about, there's no difference between us and the most desperate, most disrespectful person in history. One Scottish preacher, his name was McKay, and uh, he, he wrote a little book called Grace and Truth. And he talks about, in the first chapter, the idea where the Bible says here in Romans 3 that there is no difference. There's no difference between the Jew and the Gentile. There's no difference, you know, amongst us as sinners. We're all in the same boat. And he talks about how until we know that in God's sight there is no difference between us and the most profane, wildest sinner in the world, we can't be saved. Nor can we appreciate the nature and the extent of the grace that's needed to rescue us from our dilemma. And he uses this illustration kind of in his little book there. And he points out this illustration. He says, someone was speaking to a rich English lady. So I'm not going to do the accent, but you can only imagine. Stressing that every human being is a sinner. And she replied with some astonishment, but ladies are not sinners. Then who are? 
the person sharing with her asked. And her reply was, well, just young men in their foolish days. They're real sinners. And when the person began to explain the gospel further, insisting that if she was to be saved by Christ, she would have to be saved exactly in the same manner as the servants in her house. By unmerited grace of God and Christ's atonement, her answer was this. Boldly and proudly, she said, Well then, I will not be saved. That was her decision. Tragic. I think a lot of us have that mentality today. That, well, God saved me, but I wasn't as bad as this person. Or I wasn't as bad as that person. See, if you want to be saved by God, you must approach grace on the basis that we see here in Romans chapter 1, right through chapter 3. On the grounds of your utter ruin in sin. And not on the basis of any supposed goodness or merit that you might try to find within yourself. Now, I want to explain a little bit about grace to you this morning. Because sometimes we have a misunderstanding of what grace is. There's two kinds of grace. There's common grace. And basically, common grace is the kind of grace that basically falls on everybody. Doesn't save them, but is experienced by them in a non-saving way. We've experienced common grace, the grace that God has shown to the whole of humanity. Jesus spoke of it in Matthew chapter 5, verse 45, when he was reminding his listeners that God causes his son to rise, what? On the evil and the good. And sends his reign on the righteous and the unrighteous. See, sometimes I think we think of grace and God's ability to save and our goodness, kind of like the Charlie Brown cartoon, you know. You remember Charlie Brown, he always had like a cloud over his head, you know, wherever he went. It's just kind of depicting there's some form of something wrong with this poor, poor little guy. That's not the case. We all have clouds over our head. See, when Adam and Eve sinned, the race came under judgment. No one deserved anything good at all. If God had taken Adam and Eve in that moment and cast them into the lake of fire, he would be totally just in that. Or if God had spared Adam and Eve, allowing them to increase until there was a great mass of humanity in the world and then threw them all in the fire, he would have been just in that. God doesn't owe us a thing. Consequently, the natural blessings that we have today are due not to our own righteousness or our own abilities, but to common grace. See, if you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ here this morning, you know what? You're still a recipient of God's common grace, whether you acknowledge it or not. Whether you acknowledge it or not. If you're alive and you're not in hell at this very moment because of your unbelief, it's because of God's common grace. If you're in good health and not wasting away in some hopeless hospital somewhere, it's because of God's common grace. If you have a home and you're not wandering about, homeless, on the streets, it's because of God's common grace. If you have clothes to wear, you have food to eat, it's because of God's common grace. I mean, you can go on and on and on with the things. 
There's no one living who has not been the recipient in some form or fashion of God's common grace in countless ways. So if you think somehow that it's not by the grace of God, but by your own ingenuity, your own experience, your own giftedness and talents, those things alone are the reason that you possess your blessings. You're really showing your ignorance of spiritual matters. And really, you're disclosing how far you are from the kingdom of God. So you have common grace. You also have something called unmerited grace. Unmerited grace. See, in our text, in Romans 3, this is what he's referring to. He's not referring to common grace. He's referring to unmerited grace. It's that specific saving grace of God and salvation, which is not common, but rather it's a gift received by some through faith in Jesus Christ apart from merit. It's a specific saving grace. See, this is the point we need to chiefly stress, of course, because It takes us back to the story of the preacher visiting the poor woman and reminds us the reason that we don't appreciate grace. Somehow we think we deserve it. We do not deserve the grace of God, beloved. If we did, it would not be grace. It would be our due. We've already seen that the only thing rightly due us in our sinful condition is a full outpouring of God's wrath and condemnation. So grace is apart from good works. It's apart from any kind of merit. And we've been going over this and over this and over this. This righteousness of God comes through the grace of God. Grace is the source of that righteousness. Redemption is is what makes grace possible. The fact that Jesus bought us. Justification is apart from works. God justifies us because he he brings to us the righteousness of Christ because we have no righteousness in and of ourselves. Salvation from beginning to end is apart from works. In other words, you know what? A simple way to say it's free. It's free. I think this is what Paul must have had in his mind when he talked about there in verse 24, justified freely by his grace in Romans 3. Lewis Sperry Chafer was the founder of Dallas Theological Seminary. I don't agree with his theology on everything. But he wrote a little book. One of the chapters was Seven Fundamental Facts About Grace. And two of his points, I thought, were very poignant. He says this, and he talks about grace and demerit. He says, grace, first of all, is not withheld because of demerit. God never withholds his grace because of demerit. That's how we think, though. But that's not true. Secondly, grace cannot be lessened because of demerit. Grace cannot be Withheld because of demerit, grace cannot be lessened because of demerit. And those are important points because they emphasize the bright side of what usually appears to be 
maybe an undesirable teaching. Because a lot of us resent the fact, the thought of free grace. What do you mean it's free? We want to earn it. We don't need something that's free. We resent sometimes the suggestion that we are unable to scale the high walls of heaven by our own devices. So we must be humbled before we can even understand the idea of God's grace. But if we have been humbled, if God has truly humbled our hearts, I'll tell you what, the doctrine of grace becomes a marvelous encouragement. It becomes a comfort. It tells us that the grace of God will never be withheld because of anything that we may have done, however evil it was. Nor will it be lessened because of that or any other evil we may do. That's why we believe in the perseverance of the saints. You know, it's not up to you to keep yourself saved. Just like it wasn't up to you to save yourself. God saves us and he continually keeps us saved. We persevere. What was that? Oh, some Christians, I know, some, my phone. Some, some Christians say, well, you know, yeah, I believe in, in once saved, always saved. And that's a poor way to talk about our salvation. Because what that does is they say, well, yeah, you know, little Joey, he made a, a profession of Christ when he was in fifth grade. And how's little Joey doing today? Well, you know been in prison five times and boy he's not doing well you know hates god hates his family but you know he he's a christian because he made this profession of what's that what do they believe once saved always saved see it allows for the life of a so-called believer to be anything but honoring to the lord and they'll say things like well he's backslidden he's a carnal christian They'll say things like that. And what are they doing? They're making excuses for someone's sin. See, the Bible says that if you're saved, there's a transformation that takes place. And it's not just you pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and learning some new language in church and coming to church and saying, okay, I guess I'm good now. I know when I go to church, I probably shouldn't cuss in church, probably shouldn't drink, probably shouldn't smoke because I don't see anybody else doing that. And, you know, throw in a little, hey, praise the Lord, brother, once in a while. And I'm feeling pretty good right about now. Very dangerous place to be because you become complacent with the things of God. The righteous person imagines that God scoops grace out of a barrel giving much to the person who's sinned much and needs much, but he gives only a little to the person who's sinned a little and needs a little. See, that's a wrong way to think of God's grace. That is one way of wrongly mixing grace with merit. See, but the person who is conscious of his or her sin imagines something similar but in the opposite direction. Such people think of God's, of God's withholding grace because of their great sin. Or perhaps even putting grace back into his barrel when they sin real badly. Withholding it. Thank God that the grace of God is not bestowed on that principle. 
Chafer says this, God cannot propose to do less in grace for one who is sinful than he would have done had that one been less sinful. Grace is never exercised by him making up what may be lacking in the life and character of a sinner. In such a case, much sinfulness would call for much grace, and little sinfulness would call for a little grace. He says, instead, the sin question has been set aside forever. The equal exercise of grace is extended to all who believe. It never falls short of being the measureless, saving grace of God. Thus, grace could not be increased, for it is the expression of his infinite love. And it could not be diminished, for every limitation that human sin might impose on that action of a righteous God has, through the propitiation of the cross, been dismissed forever. Some of you right now, as I was thinking when I was reading that, say, well, wait a minute, doesn't the Bible say where sin abounds, grace abounds more? Yeah. It doesn't say the, the, the grace increases. It just says it abounds. It's measureless. You're never going to run out of it. Grace humbles us because it teaches us that salvation is apart from human merit. And yet at the same time, it should encourage us to come to God for the grace that we so evidently need in our lives. Do you understand there's no sin too great either to turn God from us or to lessen the abundance of the grace he gives when we come to him with a repentant heart. That brings us (laughs) to our text. The results of divine righteousness. What are the implications of justification? What are the implications of this divine righteousness that we have in Romans 3.27? Well, the first thing in your outline there is that boasting is what? Excluded. Boasting is excluded. See, if men are justified by faith alone, who gets the credit for your salvation? God. Salvation begins and it ends with God alone. He paid it all. Therefore, we have nothing to boast about. And that's what he says in verse 27. Then what becomes of boasting? What do you do about boasting? It's excluded. Well, excluded by what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. It is excluded. I think it's important, very important for us to realize that when we come to Christ, and this is important to remember when you share your testimony. I've heard some testimonies, man, they glorify their sin and themselves more than they glorify the Lord. They'll talk 20 minutes about their how bad they were, and they were this, and they were that, and oh, they did this, and they did that. Boy, everybody, they got a captive audience. It's kind of interesting to hear people confess all these sins, and, and then, you know, they, and then they say something like, yeah, and then I found God, and I got saved. And then they sit down. It's like, whoa, wait a minute. <laughs> really? That's what happened? Might want to examine this. See, how can we possibly forget about ourselves. Remember that little chorus we used to sing once in a while? Let's forget about ourselves. Remember that song? We sing that song, but we, it's a hard thing to do. It's a hard thing to forget about yourself. Why? Because we're so filled with pride. 
I tell my daughter every time she comes with the grandkids to visit, I mean, it's wonderful to have them here, and boy, it's a blessing and everything. And after they leave, inevitably, I'll send her a text or an email or I'll call her and say, you know what, every time you come and visit with the kids, it's a reminder of me of how selfish I am <laughs> as an individual. Because, you know what, it's just Ambika and I living in the house. All of a sudden, you got three kids, two other adults. I mean, I can't just sit down on the couch and, and, and watch the Niners or watch... Wait a minute, what do you mean you're watching the animal kingdom? What is that? You know, it makes you want to go out and buy another TV. It's kind of crazy, isn't it? So selfish as individuals sometimes. See, but we are able to forget about ourselves when God turns our attention to Christ. It's He who died for us. It's He... He binds the whole of our hope and life to him through faith. See, that's what it means, being saved by grace. It means that we can't save ourselves. And if you're trying, just give up. Because you're not going to be successful. Allow the Lord to do the work that he desires to do. And so he says, where is boasting then? It's excluded It's excluded. Salvation by grace is one doctrine that undercuts all boasting. Well, what are ways we boast? What are some ways that we boast? Well, I think, first of all, we can boast about our morality. The Lord reminded me a couple times when I was sharing my testimony. I was talking about growing up in kind of a family, big Catholic family, nine brothers or six brothers, two sisters. And they were all kind of rebel rousers for the most part. And I was the baby. And when I share my come to Christ, the, the pastor turned to Romans 3.23 and, hey, you know, all have sinned. I said, I'm not as bad as the rest of my family members. I mean, they were really bad guys, you know. And I felt kind of, boy, I'm kind of building myself up here. You know, because I didn't cuss and I didn't curse and didn't run around with different girls and stuff like that when I was younger. And I'm reminded you think God cares about that? He doesn't care about that. That doesn't get you brownie points with God. And that was the case of the Pharisee, right? We see certain people as religious people. And they look upon religion as an ultimate way for human achievement. If I just go to church, maybe God will bless me more. Others are very proud. They They think somehow they can achieve in business and gain the acclaim of the business world and entrepreneurs and finance and all that and go down that road. Others look to art and literature or maybe the academic field, get degree after degree after degree. But see, to be acclaimed by God... For God to be able to look at you and say, you're my son, you're my daughter. I look at you with no judgment. That can only come through Christ. So some people draw up their little systems of morality. And then they expect God to praise them as a result. Maybe they fast, they tithe, they pray, they do the good works, they do all these things. Trying to be good people. Good enough for God to save them. While others who don't do those things are not good enough. So they're going to perish, obviously. See, that's our mindset. Salvation through the work of Christ undercuts all that. 
For not even the best of our righteousness can be righteous enough. In fact, it's worse than not good enough. It's actually evil because it feeds the pride that's in our hearts. That's why he says there's none righteous, not even one, all turned aside. Secondly, pious feelings. (laughs) Sometimes in the past people worried about doing good. And they were really in the danger of trusting in one's morality. And they really maybe thought they could be saved because they're being better than other people. Sometimes people come to church and they say, oh, you know, I love to go to church. It gives me such warm thoughts about God and about myself. I, I leave feeling so well, so much closer to the Lord. I'm wondering if the preacher's doing their job, if that's how they feel every week. Because we're not moral people. We maybe could feel close to God somehow, but that doesn't mean we're saved. We don't want to have feelings that are based on untruth. Thirdly, knowledge. Some people think that somehow if they can just memorize enough verses and memorize this and memorize that, the Westminster Confession, whatever it might be, catechism, all this stuff and no words such as redemption and propitiation and justification and they can hold their own in the theological circles somehow that, you know, that means that uh, God's looking down and giving them brownie points. No, that's why... Paul says here, there's none who understands. We're all in the same mess. And then faith. Human boasting of faith. You know, there's good faith, beloved, and there's bad faith. You can have faith in something that's not going to save you. Make sure your faith is grounded in the work in the Lord Jesus Christ because it's that kind of faith that will save you. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this about faith. He says, Faith is nothing but the instrument of our salvation. Nowhere in Scripture will you find that we are justified because of our faith. Nowhere in Scripture will you find that we are justified on the account of our faith. The scripture says that we are justified by faith or through faith. Faith is nothing but the instrument or the channel by which the righteousness of God in Christ becomes ours. It is not faith that saves us. What saves us is the Lord Jesus Christ and his perfect work. It is the death of Christ upon Calvary's cross that saves us. It is his perfect life that saves us. It is his appearing on our behalf in the presence of God that saves us. It is God putting Christ's righteousness to our account that saves us. This is the righteousness that saves. Faith is but a channel and the instrument by which his righteousness becomes mine. The righteousness is entirely Christ's. My faith is not my righteousness. We shouldn't define it that way. And we shouldn't think of faith as righteousness. Faith is nothing more, he says, 
but that which links us to the Lord Jesus Christ and his righteousness. So let's put an end to our boasting. Galatians 6, 15 says, if we're going to boast, what do we boast in? The cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christians are all nothing but sinners saved by God's grace. And if you think of yourself as anything more than that, it's, it's going to be a turnoff probably to other Christians as well as non-believers. If you don't believe that, you're not saved. If you're still trusting in your own good works, if you're still trusting in your feelings, if you're trusting in some superior religious knowledge about your faith and not in Christ, I, I can honestly tell you you're probably not saved. Because Jesus is the only one that can save you. That's the message of Christianity. And if you believe that, you will forget about yourself truly. And you will bow low before him and accept the righteousness that he desires to give you. So boasting is excluded. And then he says in 28 and 29, quickly here, he says, basically, distinctions are rejected. He says, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? If he is not the, is he not the God of Gentiles? Yes, of Gentiles also. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? I just read that. Yes, of Gentiles also. It's important to understand that there's no distinctions here. I mean, who can qualify for God's salvation? Both Jew and Gentile. That's basically everybody in the world. Either you're a Jew or you're a Gentile. There's only one God, it says right there. There can only be one way of salvation. I want you to understand this morning, God has no stepchildren. He doesn't have children who come into his family in different ways. I don't care what Joel Olstein says or any of these other people. Okay, there's only one way to be saved, and that's through the blood of Christ, through the cross, through the work of Christ. Everyone comes by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't come by works. That means everyone stands on an equal basis with God when it comes to salvation. There's no distinction. Just because someone's a pastor or an elder or whatever, they're a sinner just like you. And you're a sinner just like me. You know, don't, we got to get, get out of this mindset in, in, our, in the Christian church today of putting people on these soapboxes. I don't care how long they've been in ministry. I don't care how faithful they've been. There's always a chance they could fall. There's a chance they could do something that would dishonor Christ and sacrifice their whole ministry. I don't care if it's Billy Graham or John MacArthur or whoever. Fill in the blank. And I know those men would tell you that firsthand. Because if they wouldn't, they'd be thinking more highly than they ought to of themselves. And they shouldn't be in ministry in the first place. So there's no distinctions. All the distinctions are rejected when it comes to salvation. We're on an equal playing field. I don't know about you, but it kind of makes you feel a little better. This went for a chaplain training up in Sacramento Monday through Wednesday. In the first class on Monday morning at whatever it was, 8 o'clock in the morning, 
they get up there and they explain what's going to happen in these classes is to get this certain accreditation by the International Conference of Police Chaplains. So you go through these classes, and I thought, okay, I'll learn something. Well, basically the third or fourth sentence into this thing after they prayed, it said, in in each class you're going to take a test. I'm like, oh, great. Here we go. You know, I didn't, didn't say anything about testing or anything in the, in the literature. Or what, and everybody else felt the same way. Everybody, you just feel the tension in the room. Just go up, you know. We don't like tests. Luckily, they gave us the answers. You know, it's like fill in the blank. I mean, you'd have to be a real uh, winner to, <laughs> to not pass these tests. But so it was, it was pretty simplified. But I remember in a college class one time... About the, the, the third week of the class, we got, got into class, and the professor came up, and he said, okay, today we're taking a test. And immediately, all these protests, well, you didn't tell us, wait a minute, we didn't study. The, and he said, don't worry, you're all going to flunk it. <laughs> what did he just say? You're all going to flunk the test. I guarantee you, every one of you will flunk this test. And all of a sudden, I didn't feel too bad then. <laughs> We're all going to flunk it. Who cares, right? And, and it kind of relieved that, that tension. See, that's what God does. He said, you know what? We're all on an equal playing field. None of us deserve the grace of God. Not, nobody. It doesn't matter what you look like. It doesn't matter how many robes you put on or how you do your hair. Or what. It, it, it doesn't matter. We're all sinners. We all need the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the last verse here, verse um, 31, he just says basically, that uh, in verse 30, since God is one, who will justify the circumcised by, he will justify the circumcised by faith, and he will, the uncircumcised through faith. So he says, you know what, it doesn't matter about the religious practice, all that stuff, it's based on the work of Christ, and we believe in that through faith. And then the last verse, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? In other words, do we just throw the law out? No, really, the law is established, and that's the last point there in your outline. The law is established. If salvation is by faith and not by keeping the law, does that make the law null and void? And he says, no way. God forbid, by no means. Because really, it's the establishment of the law. Justification by faith upholds. It establishes the law. In at least four ways. The law shows us of our sin. And we're not going to go into detail of these because we've mentioned these before. Without the law, we'd never know what God demanded of us. His law just shows us what God wants. It helps us see that there's no way we're ever going to be able to give it to him on our own. Secondly, the law shows us our need for Christ. Every time we fail to keep the law, we're reminded that unless a supernatural change takes place within us, we will always fall short of the law of God. The law was fulfilled, the scriptures tell us, by Christ. It was his sinless life. It was his sacrificial death that Jesus fulfilled the righteousness and the demands that the law called us to have. His obedience, beloved, was credited to us. His righteousness was given to us. It was imputed to us when we put our faith and trust in him. And then the last thing there, the law is fulfilled by the power of the Spirit in us. As saved individuals, we have that very same Holy Spirit power dwelling within us. 
So in summary, chapter 3, basically, God has provided a righteousness of his own for men and women, a righteousness we don't possess in and of ourselves. These are great doctrinal truths. The second one is that righteousness is by grace. We don't deserve it. In fact, we're incapable of ever deserving it. The third thing, it's the work of the Lord Jesus Christ in dying for his people, redeeming them from their sin that has made this grace on God's part possible. Redemption describes the work of Christ in relationship to ourselves. Propitiation describes the work of Jesus Christ in relationship to the Father. Justification describes the act by which God the Father declares us to have met the demands of the law on the basis of Christ's work for us. I mean, it's all because of the the work of Christ, because of the death of Christ, that there even is a Christian gospel. That's why when you run into churches that are afraid to mention the blood of Christ or sin or, or the sacrifice of Christ because they don't want to turn people off, they're missing the whole point of the gospel. And then the last thing, this righteousness which God has graciously provided becomes ours through simple faith, through believing, through trusting God. In regard to the work of Christ, that's the only way anyone, whether you're Jew or Gentile, doesn't matter. That's the only way you can be saved. Hebrews tells us that without faith, it is impossible to please God. I want to share a story with you as we close. And it just, it's just a story of God's grace. And it's basically talks about that, that verse in Romans 5.20, but where sin increased... Grace increased all the more, which means it abounds. John Newton was an English clergyman. And I know you're familiar with John Newton because Ken brought a message a while back on this. But he lived from 1725 to 1807. He had a wide and effective ministry. He'd been called the second founder of the Church of England. We know him best for his hymns. Well, Newton was raised in a Christian home in which he was taught a lot of different verses in the Bible. His mother died when he was only six six years old, and he was sent to live with a relative who basically mocked Christianity at every turn. One day at an early age, Newton left home and joined the British Navy as an apprentice seaman. He was wild, dissolute in those years, and he became exceedingly immoral. He acquired a reputation of being able to swear for two hours without repeating himself. Eventually, he deserted the Navy off the coast of Africa. Why Africa, you ask? In his memoirs, he wrote that he went to Africa, Africa for one reason only, and that was that I might sin my fill. In Africa, he fell in with a Portuguese slave trader in whose home he was cruelly treated. This man often went away on slaving expeditions, and when he was gone, the power in the home passed to the trader's African wife, the chief woman of his harem. This woman hated all white men, and she took this hatred out on Newton. He tells us that for months he was forced to grovel in the dirt, eating his food from the ground like a dog and beaten unmercifully if he touched it with his hands. For a time, he was actually placed in chains. At last, thin, emasculated, Newton 
made his way through the jungle, reached the sea, and there attracted a British merchant ship making its way to the coast of England. The captain of the ship took Newton aboard, thinking that he might have some ivory to sell, but when he had learned that the young man knew something about navigation as a result of his time in the British Navy, he made him the ship's mate. Even then, Newton fell into trouble. One day, the captain was ashore, and Newton broke out the ship's supply of rum, and he got the whole crew drunk. He was too drunk himself, and even when the captain returned, he struck the captain in the head. Newton fell overboard and would have drowned if one of the sailors had not grabbed him and galled him and hauled him back into the deck in the nick of time. Near the end of the voyage, as they were approaching Scotland, the ship ran into bad weather and it was blown off course. Water poured in and the, sh- the ship began to sink. The young profligate was sent down into the hold to pump water. The storm lasted for days. Newton was terrified. Sure, the ship would, sh- would sink and he would be drowned. But there in the hold of the ship, as he pumped the water, desperately attempting to save his life, the God of grace, whom he had tried to forget, but who had never forgotten him, brought to his mind Bible verses he had learned in his home as a child. Newton was convicted of his sin and of God's righteousness. The way of salvation opened up to him. He was born again and he was transformed. Later, when the storm had passed and he was again in England, Newton began to study theology and eventually became a distinguished evangelist, preaching even before the queen. Of this storm, William Cowper, the British poet, close friend of John Newton's, wrote this, God moves in a mysterious way, his wanders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. In Newton, he became one of wonderful hymn writers. He wrote a hymn, says, How sweet the name of Jesus sounds in the believer's ear. It soothes his sorrows, heals his wounds, and drives away his fear. And we also know he wrote the hymn, Amazing Grace, How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. T'was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hours I first believed. Through many dangers, toils, and snares I've already come. This grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. Newton was a wonderful preacher of the grace of God. And it's no wonder he was because he had learned that all who had ever been saved had been saved through the grace of God, apart from human merit. He understood he deserved nothing, but he found grace through the work of Christ. And I just want to close and ask the question here this morning, have you been saved by what is described in these doctrines? Have you been saved from your sin by Jesus Christ? Do you know that he died in your place to bear the punishment for your sin and offer you in its place his own perfect righteousness? Have you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior? Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that this Bible we hold in our hands is your word. That It's your gospel. It's your good news. It's the only true gospel. 
It's the only way in which a sinful man or woman can be saved. Father, we thank you that you have allowed many of us to taste of your salvation, to understand this grace that you've bestowed upon us so that by faith we could acquire the righteousness of Christ. And Lord, I pray that if there's any here this morning who's yet to hold out and to put trust in their own goodness somehow, that you would drive home the simple fact that they're not good, that we're all sinners, we all need the grace of God, we all need to be saved. Whether we acknowledge that or not, it doesn't change the fact. And so, Father, I pray that you would do that work as only you can do the work in the heart, in the human heart. Open it up to see the truth of God. Help it to feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit upon their lives, Lord, that they would understand the utter ruin of their sin and their sinful state before a holy God. And they would cry out to you for merciful mercy. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me. God, you can do that even here this morning. And Father, I pray that as believers we will take this message out of this building, out into the community, to the neighbors, to the family members that have yet to hear. Or maybe they heard and they need to hear it again. I pray that we would live lives that uphold the gospel of Christ. That we would live lives of holiness through your power, through your spirit that you would receive all the glory, all the honor. We ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.